says walk. Walk up. Walk out. Walk into the wilderness. If your legs shake, go slow. If you wonder how you will get there, just look for a next step. If you don't even know where there is that you're getting to, take one rock and place it on another. And remember... Good morning, Kent Cove. My name is Pastor Corey. I'm the transition pastor here at Kent Covenant Church, and it is my pleasure to be with you again this morning and continue our series on the Exodus. Our text this morning comes to us from Exodus 32. We're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 10 and then skipping a chunk and picking up again in verse 30. So Exodus 32 reads like this, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterward, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation." Then skipping ahead to verse 30. The next day Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go lead the people to the place I spoke of, and my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place, a telling space, where heaven and earth meet. Amen. 
So I have two questions to begin our time together this morning. The first is this, have you ever ended up somewhere you did not intend to be? Have you ever en ended up somewhere you didn't intend to be? Now, personally, I would not know what that is like. I have like this built-in GPS. I know where I'm at all. No, I, all the, I don't. I end up where I don't intend to go all the time. The other question I have for you is, have you ever made a decision that is either in part or wholly influenced by fear. Yeah, me either. Never done that. Right? So this, where we pick up in the story of the people of God as God has delivered them from Egypt this morning is uh, an exercise in ending up where you did not intend to be and doing so because you're making decisions out of fear. This part of the story could also be titled, How Many Commandments Can You Break? <laughs> because if you read this entire chapter, you will see that we break the second and third and seventh and possibly um, several other commandments along the way. Now I want to be clear because I always feel like it's important for us who have this task of preaching the Word of God to acknowledge when texts are difficult and problematic, and this is a difficult and problematic text. We, didn't, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but if you follow this chapter, what happens in this story is problematic on a number of levels. We're going to talk about a couple of them this morning, but we're not going to talk about what it means that when Moses comes down from the mountain, he throws down the stone tablets, and then he rallies the Levites, and they essentially go up and down the camp slaughtering people. Thou shalt not kill, right? I mean, so we have to acknowledge those places in the text where we have to struggle to understand exactly what is happening. But where I want to spend our time this morning is on the beginning of this story and then the end of this part of the story. So what we have here is the Israelites have been delivered. They're in the wilderness. God is, or Moses is up on the mountain communing with God. He has been away for a while. We don't know exactly how long, but it is long enough for the Israelites to become afraid. And this is what I missed the first several times reading through this text. Because the way generally I have understood this text and read this text all through my life has been how could these people, these stiff-necked people, be so stupid to forget who God was? Moses has barely been gone, right? And all of a sudden they're, you know, telling Aaron to make a God, make gods for them out of their jewelry. How stupid can we be? How stupid are they? But here's the thing I missed. One, it, the text does not tell us specifically how long Moses had been up on that mountain. Two, it's easy to forget that this is a people who have just been released from bondage. They have experienced 400 years of trauma. They have experienced 400 years of oppression. 
they have experienced precisely somewhere between one and six months of freedom, right? And so when Moses goes up on the mountain and basically disappears, they become afraid. They become afraid. And what do we do when we are afraid? We make stupid decisions. So the people have in this time of waiting inadequate memory, right? They remember that they've been delivered, but all they can see is what's happening right now. The immediate, the immediate pushes out the past and clouds the future. All they are experiencing is the fear. What they know at this moment is simply that Moses is gone, and so we better figure out what we're going to do next. And I love that line. As for this fellow Moses, we don't know what happened to him. <laughs> right? I mean, who was this guy anyways? But it's that, that's what we do, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, when we have leaders and they disappoint us, or we lose sight of them for a while, we very quickly start to point out their faults and the fact that they're not there right now. As for this guy, I don't know, man, but we better do something. And so they gather around Aaron, and they ask for God's. Verse 4 tells us that the idol was a calf, and in actuality, it was a young bull, which is a symbol of virile power, which made me wonder, when will we learn this lesson? I mean, this is, this is a long time ago, and yet we still, as people, will be absolutely gaga over some symbol of virile power, right? And that's what they wanted. And so they, you, they form this idol of a young bull, wanting symbolism of virility and power over substance, right? Then the text tells us then they said, these are your gods. Does anybody remember the second commandment? <laughs> it wasn't that long ago. These are your gods who brought you up out of Egypt. So in this little introduction of what's happening in this part of the story, we see Israel choose out of fear to attribute the action, the redemptive action of God, of God's liberation to a human. That it was simply Moses who led us up out of Egypt. And then it was this bull, this young calf, the gods that brought them up out of Egypt. Then they, it moves on in verse 6. And there's language in verse 6 that um, suggests that the party got wild. 
And there was confusion about what was happening here. So Aaron builds an altar in front of the calf. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then in verse 6 it says, So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. And afterward they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. The undertones of this are of fertility cults. We don't have to go into detail. Use your imagination, but not too much. (laughs) Right? It's not good. The people have, out of their fear, fashioned this idol, and then it's almost as if Aaron realizes, oh yeah, but we also still worship Yahweh, so he builds an altar in front of it. And so now, all of a sudden, you have these two things joined together. This, friends, is what happens when the people of God forget who God is and what he has done and live out of fear instead of faith. The big theological word for this is syncretism. And so what has happened is that the people of Israel have blended now faiths together. They have blended their gods of uh, the bull and perhaps some fertility cults that they learned in Egypt or in the surrounding culture, and they've, and they've melded it with the faith in God. So the construction of an altar, Aaron kind of remembering that, um, and saying that we'll have a festival to the Lord is kind of like, oh, well, we've got to put these things together. The Israelites are scared that Moses isn't coming back, and they need a mediator. They need something between them and God. And so now this bull apparently is going to be that mediator. Now, this should be ringing all kinds of bells for us. In fact, one of the things that astounds me as I read this chapter over and over again, getting ready for this message, is it's like, man, just change the dates. (laughs) And we can see this, if, if we're willing to be honest with ourselves, we can see this in ourselves over and over again. Fear motivates us to do something. Fear motivates us to take action because we don't feel that God is present enough or we can't see God or we can't feel God or we don't don't have enough faith to remember that even though we can't see or feel God's presence that he is still there. And so out of that fear, we begin to put things together. We begin to say, well, God and God fill in the blank. Syncretism is deadly precisely because it blurs the lines between faith in God and faith in God's. Syncretism is deadly because it blurs those lines. Right? We we think, well, uh, we put these things together. And we forget, just like the Israelites did, 
that God has called us to be different, right? One commentator said about the Israelites in this um, incident that the last thing they want is to be different by their new relationship to God, yet this is God's aim. God has set them aside to be a blessing to all the nations, to be different, but their fear has clouded their vision, and so now they are adding things to that faith out of fear. And so God's response is to disown his people, right? Verse 7, I love the way this this uh, the language here it is so distinctly um, anyone who's ever been a parent right you'll recognize this language then the Lord said to Moses go down because your people whom you brought up out of Egypt have become corrupt go deal with your son go deal with your daughter right or that phone call do you know what your child did right this is so classic go get your child do something with them I'm out this is a stiff-necked people is how they are described and believe me I think if we are honest with ourselves we recognize that description what does that phrase mean, stiff-necked? Well, it's, common, it's a common one in the Scriptures, and it's one of those that doesn't need a ton of explanation because we all recognize it in some form or another. But essentially, it's a farming metaphor of an ox or a horse that will not respond to the rope when tugged. Right? Stiff-necked. Will not listen will not go where they're being led. Then God says to Moses, now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. God has had it. He is done. And then he tempts Moses. Then I will make you a great nation. Does that sound familiar, that language? It's the same promise he made to Abram, right? God is moving. God is angry. God wants to cut off the people of Israel because of their sin. And then he says to Moses, but I will make you a great nation. And so he offers Moses this place in history where God might do a new thing through Moses and his family. And here's something amazing. This is where Moses' pastor's heart shows up. This is where Moses' heart for his people shows up because he intercedes on their behalf. Even though they have wounded him and God, even though they have broken trust with him and God, all of this, I imagine as a leader, Moses has taken quite personally. 
And we know that as you read through the rest of the chapter, when Moses comes down from the mountain and sees what has happened, he flies into a rage that is more than a little problematic. He rallies the Levites, says, who's with me? And they go from one end of the camp to the other, slaughtering people. And the text tells us that over 3,000 people died. Moses is hurt. But before he gets to that point, he's already interceding uh, to, on their behalf to God. Now, I, can't, I imagine that this response is important for us. As I mentioned, I think that all of us can understand and see syncretism if we're willing to. We see those places where we have welded other things on to our faith in God in order to feel like we're not afraid, in order to feel like somehow we have some power and we can keep our lives the way we want them and we really don't have to be that different. We can just be a part of who we are. Right? We've melded on. Friends, I wish I could stand here and say that the, that the church responds better to the pastor's heart of Moses than the Israelites did, but they don't. Because I can tell you story after story of brothers and sisters, pastors in the church who have lost their jobs, who have had congregations closed simply because they named the sin of syncretism in our midst. They dared to speak to the people of God, the truth of God, about what is happening in their midst and trying to warn them about it. And of course, we could also tell plenty of stories about pastors who have been errant to their congregations and have said, give me your earrings, we'll build a calf. But it's syncretism nonetheless. So Moses intercedes on their behalf and says, I, I will be a mediator for them. And he asks God to relent. And then we jump to verses 30 to 35. And we see and we know from the way the story goes that none of that generation, including Moses, enters the promised land. Not one. Now here's the interesting thing. As we look at those verses, we hear God say that, that a plague is going, to become, is going to come on them. The interesting thing is the plague is never defined. We don't know exactly what that was. But it demonstrates personal responsibility for sin. Moses offers to be the atonement for Israel's sin. God refuses that offer, but this sets in some ways the archetype for the ultimate redemption by Jesus' sacrifice for all humankind. One who steps in and takes our guilt. God's deliverance of Israel from Egypt changes their location but it does not transform their hearts. Do you see that? In the story, the geography changes, but Israel's hearts do not. 
They are still ruled by fear. How different, how are we different than the Israelites in the wilderness? We cling to other solutions. We put our faith in God and fill in the blank. God and country. God and government. God and politics. God and our 401k. God and We too have seen God deliver us from our own bondage to sin and self-destructive habits and then quickly afterwards allow fear to overrule our hearts of gratitude. Fears of all kind crowd out our faith and trip us up and frankly make us do and think some pretty jacked up stuff. Things not at all unlike golden calves and mixed up worship of God and the gods of our culture. But brothers and sisters, there is hope in Jesus. Not that our fears will simply disappear because we have chosen to follow him, But because, as Paul wrote in Romans 8, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the very Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If, in fact, we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified in him. Dear God, may it be so. Amen.